Welcome to the Band Voices podcast. This is Joseph Dunnigan. Band Voices is the podcast from the Band Books Museum, a museum in Tallinn, Estonia, which protects and exhibits banned, burned and censored books from around the world. In this episode, I interview Abdueli Ayup. Abdueli is the director of the Research Centre at the World Uyghur Congress. I first learned about the persecution of the Uyghur people when I was living in China in 2012. However, I've watched in horror, along with the rest of the world, for the last few years as the discrimination has evolved into actual genocide. The World Uyghur Congress represents Uyghur people all over the world and advocates for human rights, democracy and freedom. I was really glad to have this conversation with Abdueli. It was not easy, and it's probably not easy to listen to either, but it's an important topic, and I think that everybody needs to continue to pay attention and to be aware of what is happening in the East Turkestan region. So, Abdueli, it's nice to meet you. I think perhaps we can start by talking about, uh, talk about yourself and about the World Uyghur Congress and uh, what it is that you do there, what it is you hope to achieve. But where do you come from? What is your background? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm from uh, Kashgar, the forest city from the sea. And it's very dry and it's very old, like more than uh, 2000 years old. And it's ancient city and it's the uh business former business hub of uh, Silk Road and uh, it border with uh, India and the Central Asian uh, countries and um, it's typical um, Uyghur city and uh, people call it the cultural capital of uh, Uyghur and I grew up there and I am a writer and um, like linguistics rights activist. I uh, published about nine books, uh, two in Turkish and seven are in Uyghur. I keep writing here in Norway uh, because of uh, writing is way of uh, life for me. And it's the way of communication with the people and with the world. So uh, I keep uh, writing. And I'm also a director of research center of the World Uyghur Congress. And we are uh, holding um, seminar, like webinar uh, every month. And we uh, chose someone, for example, we chose uh, Uyghur, one part of Uyghur culture that Meshrep. It's because of Meshrep is uh, really popular and important uh, part of Uyghur culture. And it's a public gathering, uh, included the music, uh, poetry, and um, singing, uh, and uh, like uh, joke telling. This is uh, like kind of entertainment among the Uyghurs. It played important role in 1997 Gulja demonstration happened in February 5th. At that time, the Meshrep played important role. Like, because of in China, uh, there is Im- impossible to have an organization. People cannot organize uh, freely. 
So the, that cultural event that actually have played important role to organize people to express their um, plight. Mm-hmm. So this was um, a this is was this was a major demonstration right yeah. in China, where yeah. it was kind of a, an expression of uh, Uyghur nationalism, but it was yes. also the beginning of a very hard crackdown, a yes. very aggressive crackdown by the Chinese state. Right, this is ninety seven. Is ninety ninety seven? Yes, ninety ninety seven. And after that, like uh, the cultural restriction started uh, uh, heavy and heavy. Like, uh, for example, that after 1997, the Meshrep culture, that public gathering uh, restricted until now. And uh, like, uh, and uh, like in uh, 2000, uh, since uh, 2000, I think 2005 or something like the government allowed, uh, we can have Meshrep as a TV program not uh, public uh, like gathering as a tv program but after this 19 after the 2017 mass arrest this even that tv program yeah canceled like now people cannot mention that kind of culture in front of others they call like after 1997 they even they even people afraid to use meshrep they use chai it means tea instead because of they cannot say it so uh, we uh, use this topic because of uh, it played important role in 1997. So uh, we are talking about how can we um, revitalize this culture uh, among in diaspora, and how can we like uh, save Uyghur culture in diaspora, and that's why we mentioned and we chose that measure up uh, in this month. And the second month, the next month, we are going to talk about uh, Uyghur identity. And there is uh, some uh, like uh, writers and intellectuals played important role to uh, build up Uyghur identity in 20th century. And we are going to talk about Abdul Halak Uyghur. He is a famous poet, poet and uh, um, right, like revolutionary leader and also the public. Uh, figure and he uh, killed by um, Chinese um, military in 1933 uh, March 13th Um, so uh, we are going to celebrate uh, we we are going to memorize that day and we are going to talk about this uh, identity uh, issue and how can we keep this identity alive in diaspora and what we should do something like that we are going to talk and uh, like uh, in this uh, the first six months we are going to hold uh, this kind of um, uh, seminar and this kind of webinar uh, and uh, we uh, organize uh, Uyghur intellectuals in different uh, country to uh, talk to the media and to talk to the especially the universities, because uh, every university they have uh, like uh, law department and sociology department and linguistics department and it's related uh, lecture we can give. For example, that I went to um, uh, the Bergen University talk about um, labor rights issue because of Uyghur are uh, forced to work in a Chinese factory as a slave labor. 
So I talked about that and there's a business and human rights conference in, in Bergen. I talked about business and human rights there. So uh, I encourage other Uyghur scholars in diaspora to talk to the uh, university and talk to the media about this, uh, especially this uh, like uh, forced labor and um, uh, women's issue, for example, that uh, like forced sterilization and the birth control and the, like kids issue, for example, that like Uyghur kids separated uh, from their parents until now, like depending on the study, there are more than 900,000 kids are in boarding school, so-called. And um, I um, documented the, the two cases about this uh, issue, like uh, two kids uh, arrested in Turkey, no, arrested in China, and they stayed in boarding school. And uh, about... Uh, about one and a half year, uh, two kids uh, completely forget their mother language, completely forget their mother tongue, and uh, they could not communicate with their family members. And they were saved because of their Turkish citizen. The two Turkish citizens like, saved because of their citizenship. And after they came, they couldn't communicate with teachers and with the, like, uh, the parents, not, not the parent, the father, uh, the mother, still in the camp and sentenced uh, 20 years so from that side from that side it's um in some sense from the chinese perspective it was actually successful it was a yes. successful reprogramming of the child after only a two-year period yeah one and a half year one and a half years mm -hmm. can you give some um for uh i think the most people in the west do know about the Uyghurs now because of because of the cultural genocide which is happening. Mm -hmm. Can you give some uh, data uh, for people like how many Uyghurs um, are we, are we how many Uyghurs are there like in the world in the diaspora mm -hmm. uh, currently in in China and uh, and of course in the camps? Mm -hmm. um, depending on Chinese uh, statistics, there are uh, twelve million Uyghur in uh, East Turkestan and. Um, uh depending on this like uh, um uh, america defense ministry i think if i'm not wrong uh, up to uh, like uh, 3 million Uyghur in concentration camp and depending on this uh, like united nation like 1.8 million Uyghur are in concentration camp and um in diaspora there are um to, um, I think up to um, 500,000 Uyghurs. Mostly they are in uh, Kazakhstan. Like we have uh, more than 300,000 Uyghurs are living in Kazakhstan. And we have uh, about uh, 50,000 Uyghurs are living in uh, uh, Turkey and another 50,000 living in Saudi Arabia and uh, other Uyghurs living in different uh, countries like uh, the United States and Canada and Australia and Europe. Yes. I remember when I lived in China in uh, for around 2012, 2013, when President Xi came in. Um, and at that time, I was living in North China in uh, what they call Inner Mongolia. 
yeah, what the yeah. Mongolians might call uh, Southern Mongolia. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, I lived in Hohat in the capital where there was a large, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uyghur, where there was a large Uyghur population. Mm-hmm. And uh, at that time, uh, you know, I had a sense that the community was not able to speak freely. But uh, I understand that since then, since 2012, since President Xi came in, things have changed very dramatically. And now do you feel that um, our, um, when it comes to the, who is carrying the culture, who is maintaining this, do you feel like that, that pressure has, that responsibility has moved from the Uyghurs in China to the diaspora, that now people who are outside of China are the ones who are primarily carrying the culture forward? Do you think that that is, that is the case? Uh, actually, um, like as you told, uh, Uyghur um, moved to different cities in China and uh, they uh, present their culture in those Chinese cities. For example, that like in Beijing, there are two Uyghur neighborhood uh, in Beijing and uh, it's just typical Uyghur village. Uh, pe- people there present their food culture and the music culture and dancing culture. And it's a window of Uyghur culture uh, in China. And but the problem is in uh, 2000, after 2001, September 11th attack, and the Chinese government uh, like uh, demolished two Uyghur villages like in Beijing. And, um, and then <clears throat> like Uyghur uh, uh, villages and the Uyghur neighborhoods in inland China and, and uh, like uh, under highly surveillance and under control. And this time, for example, that uh, Uyghur mainly targeted in uh, Zhejiang, uh, like uh, Kechou, because this, that it's a uh, like textile hub of China. And Uyghur uh, do business with the like Central Asian and China between these two like big uh, population group, and they do just do this business. And like Uyghur in Kacha also targeted, and like uh, there is no Uyghur neighborhood exist in that Kacha anymore. It means that like Uyghur not only in uh, East Turkestan under pressure, the, the Uyghurs who lived in Chinese cities and like uh, already integrated with the Chinese uh, society, they were also targeted. For example, I have a uh, nef- I have a, like a cousin, He's, uh, he has company in Guangzhou. After 2017, he could not do his business in uh, like uh, Guangzhou and he forced to leave Guangzhou to live his original city. And so it means that like Uyghur uh, tried to integrate and they tried to like uh, uh, do like have their life and uh, like uh, pursue their happiness in Chinese uh, cities, but they couldn't at the end, they like as an individual or as a group, they couldn't. So you feel like over, over time, it is becoming less and less possible to be both Chinese and a member of ethnic minority group that these things yes. now are kind of um, conflicting with each other more and more. Yeah, it's... especially especially it's uh, not only because of the like uh, Chinese government in uh, like uh, since two thousand one, Chinese government described Uyghur as the part of international terrorism, and that they like uh, over 
estimate and like uh, propagate the Uyghur as a terrorist. And because of that, like uh, uh, Chinese um, like population, the like public opinion against Uyghur like uh, changed dramatically. Before, uh, when I, I lived in uh, Chinese uh, city more than 10 years, and uh, like before the public stereotype against Uyghur are like uh, dancing and like very happy ethnic minority. And like uh, we have another name that like young uh, Rocher, it means that sell shish kebab in Chinese city. But after 2001, like because of China used this international war against terrorism as a pretext to like uh, smear Uyghur and damage Uyghur like um, identity. So like uh, because of this uh, propaganda, Chinese uh, uh, like uh, public opinion against Uyghur changed dramatically. And so like that oppression in Uyghur, against Uyghur in Chinese city, not only because of the authority, because of the government, and another, there's a public opinion also played important role. For example, that after 2009, September, no, 2009, that like Uyghur demonstration happened in Urimchi, and Uyghur targeted in Chinese city by civilian, not by the government, also targeted by civilian because of, because of like Chinese government, uh, uh, portrayed this demonstration uh, terrorist activity. And this, like, you know, international terrorism is a problem. And then Uyghur became, uh, like, uh, uh, representative of, uh, like, uh, international terrorists in China. And because of that, public opinion against Uyghur also changed. And the Uyghur also targeted not only from the, like, police or, like, uh, soldiers and the, like, uh, uh, armored police. And also, like uh, the public uh, opinion and the public, like the, the uh, those guys in like even they also targeted the Uyghur. So like uh, mm -hmm. it's so the 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 state has the state has uh, kind of uh, turned the average civilians, normal civilians, into pol the police. Like the normal Chinese population now have been weaponized. Yeah. To kind yeah. of uh, monitor, and I understand also that. Uh, Part of this is uh, using the regular Han people importing, moving Han people to uh -huh. uh, traditional Uyghur mm -hmm. uh, lands. I mean, this has happened for hundreds of years, right? But now, yeah. in the now with technology, it's becoming easier and easier. Mm -hmm. And even using civilians as uh, kind of monitors mm -hmm. for the local mm -hmm. Uyghur Uyghur mm -hmm. population, mm -hmm. is that yeah? Is that accurate? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It is like uh, for example that before uh, Chinese. Uh, Immigrants uh, like uh, went to uh, Uyghur homeland with the. They followed the army actually. They came like first the like uh, Chinese Communist Army came, then those immigrants uh, come there uh, like uh, willingly with the army, and then like they pursue their happiness. They came, and it's like uh, it's the different concept. The first they came like whatever they do, it's they live their life. And the, like, uh, yes, the, the like uh, resources, there is a resources competition and like uh, water resources and like mineral resources uh, occupied by like immigrant. It is true, but at that time they didn't occupy Uyghur home. But this time problem is the Chinese government like uh, 
install those Han Chinese immigrants to Uyghur home. This is like, uh, this is uh, like, I, I, I think this is like create hatred. For example, that like uh, the fam unfamiliar man suddenly arrange it to live with you. It is, um, it is not acceptable. It's weird. In, it's yeah, very it, strange. I mean, yeah. to, be, to be clear to people, we're literally talking, we're talking about your family having a man, another man living in the household, like with a room. Yeah. For, uh, so it's a Uyghur household with a Chinese person living there whose job is basically to monitor for um, any kind of Uyghur cultural practices, including the use of the language, right? Yeah. That is, yeah. Is, is basically forbidden to use the Uyghur language even within your own household, within your own family at this point. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like it started in 2014. At the time I was there and I saw like uh, the uh, at the time 200,000 Han Chinese government officials first they installed the government officials 200,000 government officials to every Uyghur village and they stay with them and at the time like uh, I remember one thing I have seen there is a government official in uh, like uh, the Yangsa county it's very close to Kashgar and uh, I went to a village, like because of I have a friend there, and uh, like there there are uh, one Uyghur lady and uh, five Han Chinese uh, officials. The Uyghur lady there to be a translator actually, because of the villagers cannot uh, communicate in Chinese. And every day, uh, when people are going to mosque, the Chinese official because of Chinese official government uh, like uh, appoint them dog the police dog to protect them. And there is a like uh, police there and also Chinese government appoint them the, the dog. And uh, like he uh, took his dog to the mosque to have a pee. And then like he said, my dog is going to pray. And like the first of all, I feel very humiliated because it's the mosque. And the second, why do you why do you let your dog to pee there in the mosque? The third, why do you call that my dog is praying? And at the time, I was really angry, and I I, I said that this is um, like if you wanna live with the people, you need to respect. And this is the mosque, this is the sacred place, and you like bring your dog five times every day because Uyghur pray five times like normals and like you bring you took your dog there and like you deliberately humiliate them what's wrong with you there does seem to be this theme of uh humiliation and yes, it's, it's, it's it's very it's not a there, there seems to be no um attempt to integrate or to make to harmonize which is ironic because the china is all about harmony and that is usually the um that's the kind of code word that they use is we are creating harmony but there's no there's obviously no attempt to make harmony this is a this is a subjugation a humiliation a dominance yeah. move yeah at that time at the time, like I remember that, like uh, every every Chinese uh, family to move that uh, Uyghur district, they have dog, appointed dog, and they have surveillance camera in front of their door. 
they can they, they can record every wigger who pass in front of their door and they have a dog and they, there is no integration and there is no like uh, like the, it's it, it's like uh, openly subjugation and openly humiliation against wigger and like your and also that the problem is you came here not with the, your tools you came here with the army with the soldiers and like in han chinese came like they mingle with the Uyghur neighborhood and like every han chinese there is a, like appointed the soldiers with you and how can you communicate with the people and you are holding gun and people holding nothing and how can you like communicate with the villagers and how can you live within villages in that attitude and in that way when did the uh, language persecution become, how did it get to this point? I mean, at this point, you, you don't even have the authority to speak the Uyghur language in your own private home, but it must have um, scaled to that point. You know, it must have started with like, okay, you can't, because what we see right now I, with, the, for example, the Mongolian people is that they can't use the, they can't use the Mongolian language in the schools. Mm-hmm. and then you can't use it in the books and then you can't use it in this and then it gets a little, little further and a little further a little more and a little more and eventually you can't speak it like the Uyghur language at all mm-hmm. so when did the language persecution start how do you how do you see that or has that started since did that start you know with when the communists came in you know in the 50s uh, no it uh, didn't start when communists came when communists came uh, there is like a complete system uh, from the university to the like from the primary school to the university we have uh, like uh, university uh, in since uh, 1924 the first university in uh, Urimchi, it's 1924 and uh, like we have uh, uh, three universities at the time and so we have uh, like a complete system from the primary school to the university in Uyghur and instructed in Uyghur and with the Uyghur books and when Chinese came they didn't change this they didn't change this already existed uh, schooling system but uh, the uh, like uh, restriction uh, started step by step the first they like impose uh, Han Chinese as a like uh, one of the course and then uh, like in uh, 2000 like in after 1997 it started like a bilingual school it means that like your kids uh, at the same time uh, like half of the courses are in Uyghur and half of the courses are in Chinese but if you send your kids to bilingual school you have benefit from the government for example that like uh, uh, if your kids study bilingual school, uh, the college entrance exam, you have 50 score. And you, for example, if you got like 300 and the government add 50, and it, it means that your score is much higher than like other pure Uyghur language students. If you go to like bilingual students, and it means that you have priority, you have a privilege. And this is started after, after like 1997. And then in, in 2000, 2002, Uyghur language uh, completely forbidden at the university. From the university to the like, uh, um, 
to a, a community college, to technology institute, and ever higher institute, Uyghur language uh, like uh, forbidden. And uh, from the high school, from, from, from like primary to high school, uh, Uyghur students have to uh, have half of the course are in Uyghur and half of the courses are in Chinese. It started in 2002. And in uh, like, uh, after uh, 2009, like July 5th, uh, this uh, restriction, this forbidden become like suddenly become really strong. For example, that uh, after 2009, uh, like Uyghur, like so-called those bilingual school, only left Uyghur as a course, Uyghur language. Other courses are in Chinese. And then since 2016, all of the Uyghur courses like forbidden, 2016, September, all of the Uyghur courses like forbidden. And like all of the courses are in Chinese. And, and another thing that students cannot even speak their own language in the school, it's written really clearly. At school, uh, this is it. Um, at high at high schools at, with at, no, no, young children prime, as well. No, from primary school to for to high school, like you cannot even speak that language at school, uh, like at the, the school schoolyard or like classroom. And it's written like uh, it's written on the wall. It's written on the blackboard, and it's written really really clearly. And then. Uh, like uh, those Han Chinese uh, so-called uh, guests and uh, they live with you like uh, once a week, uh, like once a week. No, sometimes some like it's, it's uh, different. Like in uh, Uyghur Southern part, uh, like Kashgar, Hoten, those parts, very like uh, Uyghur dominated places. Like uh, Han Chinese live uh, like, uh, uh, twice a week and like uh, hand dominated our northern part and once a week so like they live with you they eat with you they sleep with you and they like uh, uh, survey they 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 they, they mo monitor your language behavior and force you to speak uh, han chinese and then like this is the peak i think because uh, like uh, before like there's I experienced, uh, I cannot speak Uyghur in public, like for example, uh, public authority or like uh, government, uh, government departments and like schools. I have experienced, but I have never experienced at home, somebody is monitoring with me and uh, forced me to speak Chinese. It's, it's not happened before. It's like um, the, the worst point. That is almost, almost unimaginable. I think for for people outside of that situation, to imagine literally a human being in your house telling you which words a grown man telling me as a grown man what words I may and may not speak to my family to my children is really hard to it's it sounds like something from fiction it sounds really hard to imagine but this is like standard practice across the across the region. Yes, it is like uh, I. Um... Uh, documented uh, cases like this. For example, that there is a, a man, uh, his name is Oblis, he is living in uh, Turkey and he sent me the picture and that like there is a Han Chinese man uh, 
like eating with them. And his male uh, family members all uh, got arrested. There are uh, just with the, like uh, female and the kids. And uh, he said that like, uh, what should I do? I want to kill myself. I want to suicide. How can I, how can I like uh, bear with it? And uh, like, um, yeah, it's really sad. It's really sad to um, like uh, imagine and. Uh, for uh, like family members and uh, for like um, member of this ethnic group, it's really hard to imagine this uh, this reality. Yeah, it's also emasculating uh, to have you know, and an, you are when you get sent to a concentration camp to know that there's literally another man living with your wife and raising your children without your consent, without you have no knowledge, anything, because the surveillance is so extreme and everything you are messaging is obviously monitored. Um, that's really hard to, I can't, I can't imagine being in such a situation. When did the, did the, did the persecution of writers kind of follow the same pattern as the persecution of language in that you were, there were fewer and fewer topics which you were allowed to discuss or able to discuss. And now at this point, of course, you can't write anything in, um, about Uyghur uh, identity or uh, culture or things like that. Actually, it is a little bit different against the, the intellectuals. Like against intellectuals, there is a like um, a collective punishment, not like this ling linguistics. It's a collective punishment. For example, that... Uh, 2000, no, 1997, uh, it's the first time Uyghur intellectuals targeted. Like 1997, Chinese government at that time, they had uh, like, uh, uh, in Chinese, it's it means that like uh, all flowers can open. <laughs> And all like Beijia Zhengming, Fang, it means that like all flowers can open and all ideas can be shared openly. It's the like roughly translation. And uh, it means that like uh, people uh, should speak and they shouldn't hide and they should tell what they have done and what their fail. fail. And this is very interesting. Like at the time, uh, like uh, one typical example that uh, I have a cousin and uh, he, his name is Asa uh, Ahmed. He uh, like um, expressed his opinion that Uyghur lady uh, have a tradition to wear like long dress and uh, like they use um, uh, more clothes for example, at that time, the, like, uh, the clothes distributed from the government. You cannot buy that clothes from the market. There is no like free market anymore because of communist system. And he said that uh, we had the same clothes. Uyghur ladies had the same clothes with the Han Chinese ladies because we have different uh, clothing tradition. So like, we should have different norm for different ethnic groups. It's his expression at the time. And because of that, he sentenced 20 years. And like when I was uh, young, uh, I still, re I remember that like uh, my older brother, uh, when, I, when I was really young, my older brother went to the prison to uh, like deliver food. 
my mother loved my brother because of he always like active to do that and i was lazy to do that so my mom my mom criticized me and my mom like praised my brother because of he is actively to send foods to my like uncle and uh, like in 2007 like 1957 at that time like almost all Uyghur intellectuals punished uh, some of them 20 years some of them 15 years and like uh, very interestingly that there is a Uyghur writer his name is uh, uh, uh Kirim uh, Mirzayit Kirim is a famous writer and they, like he arrested uh, and sentenced in uh, 1957 because of he wrote a poetry uh, it's that like in that poetry he wrote that like at the time uh, he wrote uh, the there is a baby who uh, like on the frozen and dead outside in Urimchi and he saw it and he described this event he described that how cruel we are. How can we put this baby outside in this winter? And how can we like look at him to die? It's it's the content of his like poetry. And uh, but in when this like collective punishment started, his the baby um, interpreted it's the like. Um, uh, the country of Uyghur. It is not the baby. It is the country of Uyghur. And uh, he's not writing about the baby. He's writing about his country. And his country died and, uh, in, in, in this cruel uh, oppression. And this winter, it doesn't mean winter. <laughs> winter, it means mm-hmm. like cruel oppression of Chinese Communist Party. And so like that man sentenced 20 years this is like this is um, a pattern actually with the countries that have soviet systems and when they are occupying we have we saw it here in estonia Mm -hmm. um i'm not estonian but but i'm based in estonia and um, the museum is here and when the when the soviets came in to and occupied estonia one of the things that the soviets targeted was poetry and because I believe that poetry is, it, because it's hard to understand and because it has multiple meanings, it's very threatening to uh, totalitarian systems, communist systems, because you can't quite pin exactly what it means. Like if you have nonfiction, it's very clear. The context is obvious. Yeah. Everybody, everybody gets the same meaning. But poetry is actually very threatening. So anybody who, I'm, I'm suspect of anybody who is um, banning poetry specifically as well. Yeah. And uh, like uh, because of that, he sentenced twenty years, and then uh, like he released uh, uh, at the end of nineteen uh, seventies, and then uh, he started writing again. Into in nine in two thousand seventeen March, that mass arrest happened again, and he arrested again, and then sentenced ten years. Sentencing someone for that length of time, sending somebody to prison for that length of time, I think is not any different from actually killing them. You're yeah. basically yeah. ruining their entire life. Because if you take if you take somebody, put them in prison for 20 years, you've ruined their chance to have a family, to have, you know, any kind of normal relationships. You change their minds completely. 
when they come out, it's very difficult for them to get a job. So there's actually very little difference. You know, you, you, it's, a, it's a complete destruction yeah. of the individual yeah. when you send them for that amount, for that length of time to prison. Yeah. And he died last year. Yeah, I feel really sad. I met him and I talked with him. Like, what's the life? Like, he stayed 20 years in Chinese prison. And then, like, after 30 years, he sentenced again for 10 years. And then he died in, in prison. And uh, like, do you um, have any of his? Do you have any of his writings? Yes, I have his uh, writing. He uh, wrote um, uh, novels. Like uh, he wrote the Uyghur historic. Like uh, he wrote about Uyghur uh, poet in eleventh uh, century. Like we have a poet uh, Yusuf Hasajib, and he lived in uh, like thousand years ago, eleventh century, and he wrote a novel about him. And uh, he wrote uh, Uyghur Kingdom in um, uh, 16th century. And uh, he wrote, uh, well, sadly, he wrote something really about diaspora. He wrote a lady's life in diaspora. And he separated from uh, uh, her family since uh, 1949. And she reunited after like 40 years. Uh, with uh, her uh, family after 40 years she wrote that no she wrote a novel about this life and she wrote really well and i loved that i just at, from that novel i found that like i just smell that that polo that wigger food that made him let that lady made that that act like very like a good description very like vivid and you can feel that uh, koshkar with that, like with the flower and with the, like, uh, uh, and like the uh, ingredients, Uyghur ingredients, and you can you can feel that. And also, he described Istanbul because of the, they separated uh, Istanbul and Koshkar, and you can feel that like that uh, flavor of uh, sea and something. He described it very well in that in that novel that the separation. And um, but at the end, he separated from his family and he died in the prison. It's really sad. Like, way about uh, one sixty height, very seen man. Like, yeah, I can, I can, like, I can still remember his handshake. Like, very, very thin and like very weak man. Like. What a cruel, like he stayed 20 years in prison and then at the end he died at the prison. It's really sad. Like, um, yeah, uh, I hope I can remember his poetry that uh, uh, Baby in the Box, the poetry name is Baby in the Box. I hope I can uh, recite right now, but uh, I didn't, I couldn't. I'm really sorry about that, but I feel really sorry about that man. Like. Um, he is a great man. He, uh, help, like, uh, he helped uh, other. Like, if you want to write something, he's really helpful. He said you should write like this. You should write like like that. And uh, he always uh, like uh, encourage uh, other uh, Uyghur uh, intellectuals to write, to work, to leave something. Uh, like she, he said, he said that. Uh, it's really interesting. He said that every day of my life, 
I feel that this is my last day. And every poetry I wrote, uh, he said that this is the last poetry I wrote. This is my feeling after I released from the prison. He told me that. So it's really sad. Well, I think that it's very important that uh, I'm going to find a copy. I'm hoping we can work on this and I'll get a copy of his material. We can add it to my museum and uh, possibly with a picture of him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, you can uh, find the picture and we'll have some information, make sure that novels, people understand. Yeah, and especially his novels and his that poetry that the, the baby died in the box, the poetry. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is why I do what I do because I, I want to find these kind of uh, people who, if, we're, if we are not careful, these people can be lost to history. Yeah. It is possible to erase. This is something which I've learned, which is the most incredibly disturbing. It is completely possible to erase people from history, and I think that in you know what we see right now happening in East Turkestan is a is an erasure of people from history, but on a huge scale. So it's very important that we take these opportunities to keep this material, grab it, preserve it, and communicate this story through time. Because we don't know what, you know, this is going to be extremely valuable in the future, I believe. So I'm glad that we can, uh, I hope that we can work on that together and uh, preserve this material. I really want to, yeah. This has been a, it's been challenging. (laughs) Uh, It's a a difficult subject to, to work through. It's difficult also, I think, for people who are listening to this, um, Estonians, for example, who might be listening to this, who have uh, limited knowledge of uh, this topic, to jump into this. And um, so I want, so I would like to kind of change the speed a little bit. Mm-hmm. Let's talk mm-hmm. about the Uyghur people. Let's talk mm-hmm. about Uyghur culture. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned poetry. Uh, my understanding is that. Um, Poetry is extremely important in, uh, there's a kind of connection between Islamic uh, communities and poetry that, you know, there's a, there seems to be a deep connection there. Can you talk about the role that poetry forms in Uyghur culture? Like what role does that fulfill mm-hmm. for people? Or is yeah. that, or is it, or is it maybe different in, in Uyghur culture? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like uh, Uyghur culture, uh, like uh, poetry uh, is really important uh, in Uyghur culture. And in Uyghur, uh, like uh, Shair, uh, it's uh, poet. It means uh, the intellectual. <laughs> like uh, pe- like uh, in Uyghur's opinion, that like uh, if someone can like make poetry, that one is intellectual. It means that the the, sig- the like uh, the the signet, Like uh, how can I say that? It's a it's a sign of your your intellectuality. Uh, the, it's in like uh, in the history. So See, um, I really, I really like that because actually, I th- I often feel that in the West we have the opposite, that poetry is often considered to be something for children, you know, or something, which makes no sense to me because English, you know, is founded with poets like yeah, Shakespeare yeah, and yeah, Milton. Yeah, I mean, these people yeah, were the poets; they wrote yeah. using poetic form. And yet today, yeah, we're yeah. only concerned about in the West. I think people are most concerned about nonfiction and dry prose, yeah, and it yeah. has to be clear and unambiguous and i think that people have forgotten like the role that poetry can play in bringing people together and yeah yeah, there should be more of a respect for it so yeah it's nice to hear that yeah and uh, like uh, Uyghur has uh, 
almost uh, 1500 years of uh, Buddhistic, Buddhistic history. So uh, during that time, like Uyghur poet is um, uh, played important role to uh, spread the Buddhism. And uh, like they, uh, at that time, the Uyghur poet uh, can write and draw and they uh, write at the same time, they draw the, the like Buddhist the caves. We have a lot of caves in Uzbekistan, and with the, like uh, some uh, caves uh, with the with the poetry and the, like uh, pick and uh, like uh, pictures. And but they demolished a lot, but uh, like there's some. And uh, so uh, um, uh, also like some uh, uh, Buddhist. The classics translated into Uyghur, it's a poetic way. Like original uh, Sanskrit is in like uh, not uh, poetry, but when it translated into Uyghur, it became poetry. So it's uh, really interesting. Even uh, like uh, some uh, Uyghur uh, books about uh, like uh, medicine and they wrote in a poetic way. And they trans and they wrote in in poetry at that time. I asked uh, like uh, I studied this topic. Why people even write this like uh, something about uh, medicine? They write in poetic way, and uh, they told me that the like uh, because of like a poet poem, there's a rhyme. If you change that word, and that rhyme will be ruined, and you cannot read that. And that those like Uyghur uh, medicine specialists. Right, that because of they want that uh, like re receipt original. There's an because, educational benefits as well. Yeah. Like you can actually remember something which rhymes yeah, yeah. a lot better. I mean, we we use this, you know, in education even today. Yeah. It's like you, you, it's a good educational tool. Uh, make yeah. whatever you're trying to teach, make it rhyme. So actually, yeah. it seems like the, it seems like a very bad idea <laughs> to have ambiguity <laughs> in your medical in your yeah. medical advice but actually yeah. if it helps you to communicate and to remember that uh, that yeah. then it, yeah it actually does make sense i asked this i asked i asked this like even even books about because i studied this ancient uh, scripts uyghur oh, and this is I, old old uyghur was old uh, uyghur, a completely yeah. different language as i understand right yeah yeah uh, uh, like i i I couldn't get why people even use poetry to this about something about medicine. And I asked uh, like uh, my professor and he told me it's because of like the, the rhyme. And one is easy to remember because of those like receipt and how to make this medicine, how to make that medicine. It's, it's hard to remember. And second, if you want to change it, it will harm to the like uh, patients. So like uh, in that way, they can, keep the originality of that the receipt to make medicine and he explained like this so it's and another thing that it's for like intellectual part the in the public part for example we have a, a meshrep culture in meshrep like you go the first you do receive a chai like they present you tea first and when you the the, the host present you tea they use poetry for example that it means that you came, I feel happy, and you are just like uh, like light of the dark, and you came, and you enlighten us, and you came, make us happy, something like that. It's a poetry. And then, when you receive the tea, you have to say something. 
but not in normal way, in poetic way. If you don't do that, you cannot have that tea. You have to wait. And when you have to wait, you have, but you have to take it, but you cannot drink it. And it's really hot and your, like, your hand will burn. And my father's hand burned because of that. My father is not really good at po poetry and he hold the like uh, tea, but he couldn't put it on the, because it's really hot. He, he couldn't put it on the like clothes because we, when we eat, we put clothes on the desk, on the cloth. So he, he, has, he has to hold it and he, he burned his like uh, his finger, his hair because of like he hold it. And then uh, like he asked me to recite poetry. He said, he, he make fun of me that when you grow up, you have an easy life. You, you don't need to hold that bowl longer like me and your like finger cannot burn like mine. And so like this is the way. Another way that when we have a wedding, it's really interesting. Your part, for example, you are groom part, you praise your groom. And the part of a bride, uh, they praise their bride. And this is a competition between two family. And then <laughs> if you can't do it, people make fun of you and they make fun of you. For example, the, the, the bride side uh, make fun of you. And like, so you have to remember, you have to be creative. You have to like, and another thing that those poetry, you cannot like, uh, for example, that uh, if you recite, it's not useful because of somebody tell you something, you need to give answer at that point. For example, that you are like, for example, if you're late, they don't call you, you are late. They use something to describe you. And you have to give an answer in that poetic way. It's not, it, it's not ready. You have to create that at that point. And another thing that very, very funny way, you, you have to make people laugh in that gathering. For example, you are late and somebody call you something and you have to tell something. And if people laugh and you have a chance to sit down and you have, you have the chance to join the, the public. But if you can, you feel awkward, <laughs> you just stand there. So like uh, the poetry, because of that, like because of you go wedding and you will get married and because of you go to the, that Meshrep public entertainment, like every winter we have Meshrep every house, house to house every week. So you have to do that. You have to be uh, poetic. You have to like be, uh, create the poetry at that point. So it makes people to like uh, care about language, care about expression and care about poetry. That's why like uh, poetry collections very popular among the Uyghur. Like in um, uh, my professor told me that uh, he, <laughs> it's interesting. He, um, in uh, 1957, that the collective punishment happened, he was in charge of collecting um, books to burn. And he said he collected, at that time, the books, 70% of them are poetry, the poetry collection. He said, I collected 70% of poetry collection. And he said, I asked people to burn it. It's my, he is my professor. He has written that in his uh, book. And yeah, it's, yeah. So uh, like um, until now, uh, like uh, Uyghur uh, writers, uh, like 
at least half of them write poetry, still keep writing. And like uh, we have uh, uh, up still we use uh, poetry and we have like joke telling culture. In that uh, like Meshidep, we keep telling joke. If you can tell joke, it means that you are very popular and you always be invited to Meshidep and you always have a good uh, image in society. So like uh, in the Uyghur diaspora also, we have someone who can tell joke and the people like him and people want to be with him. And if you can tell the joke with the poetic way, Oh, people respect you. Oh, you are both poet and the joke teller. Yes, you are the perfect. So it's really good to be, to be a, a story, like a poetry poet and at the same time, the like a joke a humor teller. Yeah. It reminds me of, you know, uh, being from Scotland. I'm from Scotland and uh, we have a kind of similar thing. There's a strong appreciation in Scotland and in Ireland as well for those who can, who can tell a joke. And to, who can um, and and poets as well, you know that is a very respected kind of old traditional thing to be able to use poetry, especially to be able to use poetry, incorporating uh, the Scottish dialect, mm -hmm. which is a you know slightly different from English, yeah, yeah. or to use the old traditional words. That's a very kind of well respected thing. It also reminded me of um, in here in Estonia, there is a kind of similar thing with children where at Christmas. You know the the children. Everybody gets gifts, and mm -hmm. children get their gifts. But the children are not allowed to get a gift until they recite a poem. <laughs> so they have to stand there, and it's it's actually you know it's kind of funny and everything. But it's also a great educational mm -hmm, thing yeah. for the kids because yeah. they learn patience, they mm -hmm. learn about gratitude, they learn mm -hmm. it's not it's not just oh we are giving you a gift because you are so wonderful, my little princess. No, no, no. Mm -hmm. You have to do something. Yeah, you have to learn something, mem memorize your poem or your song, whatever, mm. and present it in front of everybody, which teaches them also public speaking skills. So it's a great, it's a, it's a great tool, yeah, uh, to to use. Mm -hmm. And yeah, what do you think? Uh, tell me also about um, other forms of uh, like weaker cultural expression. The like, for example, I and uh, for example, I understand that uh, dance is particularly important, but I am always suspicious of this. Because I know that in China, dance is kind of in the Chinese government kind of um, when they crack down on cultural expression, they made an exception for dance and sometimes costume, because this is something you can do on Chinese TV and it looks mm -hmm. very kind of colorful and it looks like, ah, look at the ethnic minority groups who, you know, and they're doing their traditional dance. How wonderful. But actually, it's the only way that they're allowed to express their culture so i'm always a little i'm a little suspicious always when i read that dance is an important part of the culture i always think okay is it, is it really or is this a manufactured thing you know it, it, so maybe talk to me about dance do you think that that okay. is true or do you think dance really is an integral part of the culture uh dance uh, also integral uh, part of the culture uh, because of like in that uh, meshirep and uh, we dance, like Uyghur traditional dance, and uh, in uh, Uyghur wedding, and uh, we dance. Even now in diaspora, if we have a gathering, we will dance together. And, um, uh, but uh, the, like our dance is not uh, that uh, extreme. For example, that like um, uh, we dance 
we have a specific time and uh, like wedding it's uh, funny like uh, we, we will happy and that and uh, like other like for example that uh, we dance uh, in front like Uyghur is only uh, uh, like unique ethnic group uh, dance in front of the mosque it's really interesting like I have never seen other Muslim ethnic group like play a musical instrument top of the mosque and the dance in front of the mosque. I have never seen other like Muslim uh, ethnic group in the world, like uh, dance and uh, like uh, music together. In Uyghur, there is a proverb. It's really interesting that like sometimes dance with the music, sometimes uh, mosque with the Quran. It's really interesting. Like people uh, didn't uh, separate it, put together crown and the mosque and the dance with the music and they they feel it's can be do and can be can be together and can enjoy yourself it's really interesting the the one who preserve like the one who preserve wigger wigger uh 12 mukam he can play he can sing all of the songs from from wigger culture like there we have a mukam culture mukam means that like the series of music like for example, that one mukam, it include, for example, that like uh, uh, it include uh, several songs and several song with the sad. It's interesting. Several song with the like public to suitable to uh, public dancing, and several song play alone like solo, and some of the song play together too. And at the end, some of the song make you feel happy, like just like uh, storytelling, just like joke telling way. So like when you go and you listen to Muqam, you can also feel alone. You can also feel that togetherness and you can also feel you are doing something with another one. At the end, you feel happy. Oh, yeah. At the end, it's, it's a good ending. And this is the Muqam that like included the uh, music and songs. And also the, some songs deliberately create to dance. But uh, after this mass arrest uh, like happened, Uyghur dance, uh, like Uyghur songs restricted because of it's with the lyrics and the government afraid of that. And, um, but the Uyghur dance is still like people dance. And, but something I noticed that those lyrics changed into Chinese. <laughs> Uh, that doesn't uh, somehow doesn't surprise me but uh, yeah. yeah the music is original and like dance people dance but that like uh, um um lyrics change and another thing it's interesting that like uh, wigger dance change it into just like athletic way <laughs> just like it's not dance like people just just playing some athletic games something like that so like, it's a it's a performance now to, yeah, performance to now. entertain people. Yeah, to entertain people. Uh, like before, it's entertained for ourselves, and then it's just it's more uh, no. before it's community. Community it used to be community bonding. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's because it's before it's community bonding. Now it's just just like a performance, just like uh, Olympic, <laughs> like people all playing something, but they don't play at home because they don't feel that way. They don't feel happy to play. They don't have a, feel happy to 
that that entertain themselves and it's just people uh, having uh, olympic <laughs> in urumqi and uh, like uh, playing that uh, dance like and another thing not one thing changed that we don't dance um at the public square if we don't like for example like in china now in urumqi like the wigger forced to dance in uh, like people's square in china every city every town there's a people's square square and wigger dance at people's square it's the new thing we have never have that kind of culture we dance in front of the mosque it's because of its eight its festival it's part of your culture and we dance uh, in the yard it's because of wedding we don't dance without any reason uh, on that public square and like uh, no there is no <laughs> there is no such culture but in china there is a, a something became culture that like the chinese uh, dance uh, in the morning and in the evening for exercise it is china culture maybe you have seen in 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 hohot and like, oh yes uh, many many times yeah yeah <laughs> but now that kind of chinese cultural practice forced wigger and to dance in the morning and the evening and with that chinese lyrics and that that became a kind of athlete kind of athleticism so uh, it's really uh, sad it's very strange but, um, to think you strange. know it's very strange and you know i mean what you're what it sounds like it's trying to do is separate the um the dance the dance in front of the mosque and the dance in the in the wed- at the wedding to celebrate a wedding has a specific kind of feeling it has a specific mm-hmm. purpose yeah yeah it has a yeah. specific traditional kind of link mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. to kind of separate that separate you're separating the elements of the dance actually mm-hmm. because the dance is not just moving from place to place mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's about a whole context and it's yeah. about a specific crowd like mm-hmm. a dance is not about you know how you is not moving in time to music it's a ritual mm-hmm. it's a whole mm-hmm. thing mm-hmm. and you when you start separating it it's actually not a dance yeah anymore yeah. if you yeah. separate the pieces like this so mm-hmm. what they're doing in front of the what the you know what they're doing now in the people's square you couldn't even call it Uyghur dancing it's yeah. like it's a separate thing yeah because yeah. you've you've removed you've removed the ritual you've removed the context it's not the dance anymore i would yeah i would think yeah it's not it's not a dance anymore it's it's just for me it's it means uh, like it's just uh, perform and uh, but the problem is it's uh, force perform and like i have seen uh yeah another thing i found that like uh, the people it's really said that uh, like kashgar became tourist hub right now and just like uh, in chinese the, in china there are movie city that kind of concept china change some old city to movie city keep everything original keep the people uh, ask them to wear original like uh, traditional clothes but when those tourists come they have to go out and dance for them now it's happening in kashgar like uh, kashgar old city people have to uh, ride camel like thousand years ago and they have to wear clothes they wear thousand years ago and they have to dance for those uh, tourists and uh, chinese government say they are practicing their culture but actually it's a commercial uh, performance and uh, like uh, 
uh, one is the, the people dance at the people's square. It's because of political game, political propaganda. When people dance at the street for tourists, it's because of commercial uh, activity, like uh, the, the, the company um, like uh, spend money on government and government force people to dance in front of the tourists. It's like when I uh, saw uh, those uh, um, TikTok video about Kashgar, I feel very sad because of like people um, wearing clothes, like not the clothes they wear thousand years ago. It's the Chinese uh, traditional custom, customs and the Chinese don't wear that anymore. You can only see from the like uh, Shioji in Chinese, like uh, uh, Chinese that monk. Uh, journey to the West. Yeah. yeah, journey to the West. And those clothes, uh, those uh, like actor and actress wear journey to the West. And like now, a Uyghur in Kashgar are forced to wear it and ride the horse and uh, like uh, uh, walking at the street. And uh, like just uh, show that, that how Chinese they are not only the Chinese, not only the Chinese at present, Chinese at thousand years ago, <laughs> like uh, traditional Chinese. Yeah, it has a it has a feeling of like a Disney Disneyland Disney World performance, you know, where like the castle is like fake and the princess is not really a princess, and you know, <laughs> and even the horse is not really a horse; it's two people <laughs> in a costume. Yeah. I saw this also, you know, this is, well, this is standard practice for, I think, for all the ethnic minority groups in, in China. You know, I, I saw this when I was traveling in China to, I traveled to Guilin in the South and, you know, to see the mountains and everything. Mm -hmm. And there was people who were, I was told were part of an ethnic minority group and they were doing their traditional fishing and stuff, but it was very obvious that it was all a performance mm -hmm. created and they yeah. had a time that they knew yeah. that our bus was going to arrive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I was looking at them thinking, are these people even from this ethnic minority group? They look Han Chinese to me. <laughs> so it's it's yeah, this is kind of stand this is kind of standard practice. And that it doesn't in some ways it doesn't bother me. Um if you if you if you are a tourist and you know and you're like, okay, I'm going to go and see, like yeah. like in Disneyland, I'm going to see an artificial thing, but I want to see it because it's kind of fun. But my problem is then is with the people who don't know, like I happened to know, but I was with other foreigners who go to China and there we are presented with this and some people genuinely believe what they're seeing as mm -hmm. a representation yeah. of that yeah. group. Mm -hmm. And, and that's why I think it's important for people like yourself in the, in the World Week or Congress to kind of communicate that message that like, no, 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 at this time, that's not authentic. And at this time, you actually have to, you know, have a broader understanding of this group. And sometimes you even have to look to the diaspora uh, to kind of like understand what the, um, what the traditions are and to see those traditions carried through. So, yeah, it's, um, I really appreciate what you're doing. And um, you. I appreciate you trying to communicate all of the, and trying to carry through these traditions and trying to, um, educate people and educate the public about this and yeah i'm glad to be part of it and have this conversation with you and that, you. Uh, i hope that we can um i hope that we can work, keep working on it and keep educating people mm -hmm. it was a really nice for me to talk to you about um not just about the chinese 
the and the cultural genocide and stuff which is extremely important to talk about but also to remember that those people here who are just mm -hmm. trying to live their lives and they have this way of living that they celebrate and they want to kind of maintain mm -hmm. so yeah it has it's been really it's been it's been challenging uh, this conversation for me there's a lot to learn a lot to a lot of education but it's uh, i really appreciate your time thank you thank you for having me and thank you like i hope we can uh, continue and I Absolutely. hope uh, that you, what you said that about uh, the, the museum and I think it's really interesting. I think it's and also it's really important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, we're going to work on it together. So mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, thank you of very course. much. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to keep up to date with future episodes. You can find out more information about the Bandbooks Museum at bandbooksmuseum.com where you can find links to our social media sites, including our Patreon page, where you can sign up to our monthly book club. Thank you for listening to the podcast. This is Joseph Dunnigan, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>